Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. With you is Danya Koja. I'm an emergency physician who practices in Baltimore, but lives pretty much all over the world. And I'm Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we are going to be talking about Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine, which is ASEP's official CME publication. Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine is a fantastic publication that has two lessons. They talk about the bread and butter of emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge. And in each lesson, you see things that are critical that you need to think about every time you face these issues. There are other features such as the critical image, critical EKG, critical procedure, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So for our first lesson of the day, we have going undercover, personal protective equipment. Thank you to Dr. Christina Campana for writing this article. So PPE has been in the news so much that even lay people now use the term PPE. Oh, do you have PPE? I'm like, I, what? That's very true. I agree. Uh, but this article was quite interesting. Certainly, we're going to be talking about the PPE that we have been making sure we have adequate supplies of, uh, but also kind of our approach to other sort of hazards in the emergency setting. And I learned that apparently emergency physicians at EMS get contaminated by drug-resistant bacteria in 20% of patient encounters. Which is really gross if you think about it. So don't think about it. But um, I personally find it really strange that a lot of individuals just started doing a lot of things to, you know, to keep themselves clean after coming from work, despite the fact that even pre-COVID, that's the first time I said that word for this podcast. Yeah, that's right. Um, even before this era, I mean, one in five patient encounters, you were getting like disgusting goop on you. So and they went home, resistant. they sat on their couch, I know. they went out to eat. Well, it's not just that. Do you know how many people would get into bed with their scrubs for a nap after work? I don't even want to know. I, exactly. Thank you. So, yes, we get contaminated a lot, even outside of this era. But definitely, this is some extra time for us to be more careful. Yes. Hopefully, these are going to be good habits for us to continue. So, certainly, PPE has many levels and kinds. But safety, as we have been reminded in this current era, doesn't come from PPE alone. We also need to, of course, have proper technique and putting it on, taking them off, and knowing what exactly you might be dealing with. Really, it's practice. We're getting lots of practice right now. (laughs) And preparedness. So when you say what your suspected culprit is, do you mean like trying to figure out if it's like droplet or airborne or contact, like these categories kind of thing? Yeah. And then also what you might have to do with the patient. Are you going to come in contact with blood? Are you going to be coming in contact specifically with respiratory droplets, with intubation, et cetera? Got it. So the article talks about standard PPE and expanded PPE. What does that mean? A standard is what we should do every day, hand hygiene, safe handling of contaminated equipment, uh, and we usually use gloves and gowns for exposures to blood or bodily fluids if there's non-intact skin or infectious materials. We should also consider eye and face protection for procedures that can spray these blood and bodily fluids. 
So something that even lay people now know these days is that hand sanitizers need to be more than 60% ethanol, 70% azopropranolol in healthcare settings. So what are expanded precautions? Well, expanded precautions doesn't mean, you know, you use now 100 proof alcohol. Because <laughs> that's also obviously been in the news. <laughs> but that is... <laughs> Wait, what? That's not what that means? All right. Uh, this then refers more to what you were mentioning before. Things like contact precautions, droplet precautions, or airborne precautions. There's a great table in the article that actually goes through some infections we commonly think about. When we're dealing with droplet versus airborne transmission. Uh, some key points are that if you're dealing with contact precaution scenarios, you want to have fluid-resistant gowns and gloves. If you're dealing with droplet precautions, then you're going to need a face mask. And of course, if you're dealing with an airborne uh, infection concern, you're going to need a negative pressure room, your N95 or a PAPR. And always, always hand hygiene. Yes, douse yourself with... <laughs> appropriately leveled just don't content. drink it or inject it <laughs> that's don't. right that's right despite who says that or what entity talks about it do not inject it or drink it just use it on your hands exactly so of course we can't not talk about covid on a topic like this and so whether the patient is confirmed to have covid or you're highly suspicious of it and evaluating the patient for it you want to have the patient in a negative pressure room with contact and droplet precautions. If the patient is not intubated, you're going to want to have a mask on the patient, especially when you're wheeling them around the emergency department or the hospital for testing. You yourself taking care of the patient want to have face shields or goggles, an N95, a gown with, again, the liquid barrier, gloves. The big thing that everybody's been talking about, of course, in lay press and in our medical community is aerosol-generating procedures, such as intubation or even CPR. The biggest mistake that we've all been reminded of is that we have to have proper donning and doffing. So there are some great infographics in this article. Well, in theory, that sounds great, Wendy, but we all know that time is a very hot commodity. So what if you don't have time? What if someone comes in and they collapse and they need CPR? What do you do? I think that's definitely the toughest part for any healthcare provider to be in because our instinct is to run towards a patient and help them. But in the COVID era, we've been also reminded a lot that we can't. We have to protect ourselves before we take care of the patient. And there's a great quote in the article that says, although the process of putting on any protective equipment can slow treatment by precious seconds, it remains a non-negotiable part of care at any high-risk situation. Also, I'm sure everybody's been also saying this and hearing this, which is there's no emergency in an emergency when you're in a pandemic. <laughs> that is true. I like that. It's non-negotiable. That is definitely something that we need to remember. So let's shift gears to a slightly different topic, environmental exposures in the scene. Right. And so, you know, our EMS colleagues are definitely the first to respond to concerns and reports of chemical or biological exposures. So they definitely get a lot more training than we do in how to, you know, gauge the risk uh, of these hazardous exposures. But there's some great information in the article, too. For example, our, you know, EMS and first responder colleagues are taught that they want to consider, you know, the location they're practicing in, whether they're in a, a community or area that has high-risk materials, like you're next to a power plant or something like that, <laughs> um, or other chemical plants, I guess. 
the container shape, uh, the markings and placards and labels uh, as you come across these things. Uh, and if there's even shipping papers that actually say what they are, but obviously those are usually harder to find. Uh, and of course, your general senses, whether you're, you know, uh, on the scene and you're smelling specific odors or seeing a vapor cloud as you're approaching the scene. So those are definitely dangerous situations. There's also a figure in the article that uh, shows what a standard label might look like from the National Fire Protection Association, which warns our first responders about these risks. There's information about uh, potential health risks in the blue quadrant, potential flammability in the red quadrant, potential reactivity of these agents in the yellow quadrant, and then also specific information about the materials present, whether it's radioactive or corrosive in the white quadrant. So a lot of information in just this one placard uh, that can help you figure out how to approach and what type of PPE you might need. Well, that was very eye-opening because I don't think we really talk enough about hazardous exposures in the field. And as you said, it's probably because we are not the ones dealing with it, but it's rather our EMS colleagues. So this was a great article that summarizes a lot about PPE, which is a pretty hot topic. It is also very hot being in your PPE. <laughs> but definitely great reminders. And the article has a lot more info than we talked about. There's a donning doffing technique, how to make sure your mask fits well. But definitely a reminder that there's no emergency in an emergency in a pandemic. Your PPE should be non-negotiable. And you need to know what is your proposed culprit or suspected culprit to know that you are protecting yourself in the correct way. Great. So for our critical procedure this month, it's actually about ventilator sharing, which we've also heard a lot about on social media, especially in the setting of COVID and the concern about, you know, limited resources with ventilators. Are we counting how many times we say COVID in this podcast? Well, we did a quite a good job last month in not mentioning COVID. That is true. We just said it like once right. or twice. So we're going to make up for it now. <laughs> <laughs> Averages. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yes, vent sharing has been talked about a lot on social media and it's definitely not optimal, but it's better than nothing. It's better than no vent. So let's say you're bridging your patients while waiting for more vents to be transported from a different hospital or a different state or whatever other backup plan that you have. And then the reason this is obviously not optimal is because you are using one vent setting to ventilate two human beings. So you're going to end up either under or over ventilating someone or causing barotrauma. And then of course, you can't really monitor them as well, like look at their pressures because the pressures are not necessarily coming from one person. And then, of course, theoretically, the cross-contamination, which is why if you're putting someone on COVID, then the other person who's on it should also have COVID because otherwise they will have COVID. And the whole idea is to use a Y-tube connector. And the article has a pretty nice image on how to kind of do that. And try to, if you have that many people who need to vent share, you need to pick patients who have similar needs. So the same expected tidal volume, so they're the same height, they have the same pathology, and that way you hopefully decrease that over underventilation. Then you multiply the tidal volume that you think the person needs by the number of people that are going to be on the vent, so like two or four. And then last but not least, a great tip is that deep sedation or paralysis is necessary to avoid dyssynchrony with each other and therefore with the vent itself. I love that you just said the term vent share, you know, because now we have ride shares and house shares and now vent shares. <laughs> yes, it's like Uber, but for vents. <laughs> yes. 
for our critical image this month. It is still on the topic of COVID. It's actually a review of the chest x-ray and CT findings that you can see in patients with COVID. Remember that chest x-rays can be normal or they could have bilateral, basilar, multifocal opacities. And classically, we talk about chest CT findings of ground glass opacities. I really love that there's an image of what ground glass is. On a bottle stopper. Yes. I mean, (laughs) how many of us have wondered what that meant all these years? Thank you, Josh. (laughs) Remember that you want to use portable x-rays to decrease contamination and decrease cleaning requirements. And CTs are not routinely indicated, but can be helpful if you're also concerned about other conditions, maybe such as PE, because we know that there's increased thrombotic risks in patients with COVID. And remember that CTs and x-ray findings should not be used to diagnose COVID, even if it is your typical COVID x-ray. So moving on to a slightly different topic from COVID, we're going to be talking about our critical EKG, which shows acute pericarditis. It's a reminder that you have PR depressions in the leads that have a C elevation and PR elevation in AVR. Obviously, so much easier to see when someone has already highlighted them for you in a box and has them magnified. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to take what you have. Definitely great reminders. For our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, it's actually on Weber C ankle fractures. And, you know, great reminder and refresher of the Weber classifications of ankle fractures. Remember that it's really based on where the fracture is in relation to the ankle joint. And it's important to us in emergency medicine because it determines the stability of the ankle and whether the patient needs surgical repair. I like how you are relating the importance of these things to what we do in the emergency department. Because a lot of times we read this and it's just like, I don't care. Their ankle is broken. But definitely when you're working in a community setting where you don't have ortho available 24-7 and you're trying to figure out, do they need to go and see an orthopedist within the next couple of days versus a different healthcare setting? So the reminder, the biggest thing is that um, below the Taylor Dome, it's a Weber A ankle fracture. And those are usually stable with no surgery unless they have other fractures with them. However, if the fracture is at the level of the Taylor Dome or higher than that, then those are B and C, and those definitely need surgery. There are a couple images in this article that clarify. So for our second lesson of the day, we have endangered species, elder abuse. Thank you to Drs. Nicole Semino-Fialis and Alma Matu for writing this article. It's pretty interesting that they chose to write it about this topic because not everyone wants to talk about it because it's very much under-recognized. And today... Dr. Nicole Simonofialis is here herself to tell us more about this article and why she chose to talk about it. Hello, Nicole. Hi, Danya. Hi, Wendy. Thank you for having me. This is a topic that I experienced personally in my family life, which uh, made me look into it further and realize how prevalent it is and the high morbidity and mortality of patients affected by this problem. And I recognized the importance of spreading information about this topic to other emergency docs who may not be aware of how prevalent and how scary it is. Wow. So how common is this? Uh, So it's estimated that about 10% of our geriatric population will experience some form of elder abuse in their life. And that statistic holds true across different countries, uh, the United States, Australia, Europe, China, all of them have similar statistics. So it's very common. 
Um, and there are some surprising facts about it. People suspect it's more common in institutions when really it's more likely in elderly patients who are living at home with their families due to a higher caregiver burden and a lot of social stress. It's also common in patients who have lower socioeconomic status uh, because they have less support. So those are things that are surprising to people and I like to highlight. So you mentioned that it's more likely to happen in the domestic domain. Who are the perpetrators in that domestic domain? Surprisingly and unfortunately, it's most commonly a geriatric patient's adult child or spouse. Um, They're more commonly the male adult children, uh, people with substance abuse history, people who are under financial strain and relying on that elder patient for financial support. Also, caregivers at the home don't have as many resources as an institution like a nursing facility may have. Uh, So they have a harder time managing these patients and are more likely to become abusers. Got it. When should we suspect this? So I think physicians need to always have this in the back of their mind when they see a patient in the emergency department uh, for an injury or maybe a presentation that this is the third time the patients come in and no one can really figure out why they're not getting better. Um, There are five different types of abuse, physical, psychological, financial, sexual, and neglect. They all have different signs and symptoms, but a lot of patients will experience more than one type of abuse. So picking up on that uh, may help the doctor to expose the other types of abuse that the patient is also experiencing. So it looks like physical abuse is the easiest one on this list to pick up on. Is that true? So you would think that, but actually... Elderly patients are at high risk for accidental traumas, and it can be really hard to tell which traumas are accidental and which are intentional. There are some clues to suggest that a physical injury did not occur because of an accident. So injuries from elder abuse are more common on the upper arms and face. Uh, Two-thirds of those physical abuse injuries will occur on the arms or face. Physicians should also look for bruising that's not over a bony prominence, so Elders that have atypical bruising patterns should raise a red flag for possible physical abuse. Uh, Physicians should look for injury patterns that go with a hand shape or maybe in the shape of a bite or a burn. Some correlations between physical abuse in children and physical abuse in elders do exist, although the literature doesn't totally overlap. But anything that doesn't quite fit with the injury pattern should raise a red flag for possible abuse. Okay. What about psychological abuse? So this is probably the most tricky to pick up on uh, because it varies based on someone's cultural background. Things that would be abuse in our culture might not be abuse in a different culture. But things to look out for is if a family member is verbally threatening a patient, maybe threatening to put them in a nursing home, uh, if the patient's being isolated from other family members, friends, church, support. When you're seeing that patient in the emergency department, they may be avoiding eye contact. They may not answer any of your questions, but instead allow their family member to answer all the questions for them. So just trying to pay attention to those context clues to look for, could this be psychological abuse? Could there be something else going on here? So financial exploitation seems pretty obvious as a definition, but how can we see it in the healthcare setting? This is a really tough form of abuse to recognize, but it can be pretty devastating to patients that have owned their own home and always paid their own bills, and now someone else is taking advantage of them financially. The primary doctor is better positioned to notice these uh, signs of financial abuse, but 
in the emergency department, sometimes we feel like patients' primary care doctors. And so when you've seen that COPD patient three times in a row and they still haven't filled those inhalers you prescribed, maybe it's time to start asking, you know, can you not afford these? Why not? You know, if that patient that you've seen a couple of times is now homeless, they've lost their home or they can't afford food, something like that, they may share with you. It should raise a red flag for, do I need to be more cognizant of, could this be financial abuse? I see. So in terms of sexual assault, I'm assuming most of these patients are not going to come in telling us that. You definitely need to be a detective with sexual assault. And there are a lot of mimics. Um, elderly women can come in with recurrent UTIs all the time just because of their physiology, but recurrent UTIs can be a sign that they're being abused. Elderly women can also come in complaining of vaginal bleeding. Um, and there are some mimics there of lichen sclerosis or just um dry vagina can cause bleeding. But if you're seeing symptoms of new vaginal discharge, vaginal sores, bleeding, any tears, recurrent UTIs, maybe just ask a few screening questions to make sure the patient is not being abused. While nursing facilities are generally safer for patients in terms of abuse than being at home, uh, this is an area of abuse that can occur in a nursing facility. And often it's perpetrated from resident to resident. And so that's definitely something to pay attention to. So how about neglect? It seems to me that that's going to be the hardest to figure out. Neglect is really tough to identify and also often unintentional. I actually saw a patient last night who's being cared for by her son, and I removed her socks to check her feet, and she had these horrible toenails eroding uh, into the skin of her toes, and her son was horrified having no idea that his mother's feet were in this condition. And technically this would be neglect because this patient needed to see a podiatrist, but just through education and explaining that his mother was having a hard time communicating what her needs were, we were able to work through that. So a lot of neglect, um, although it's the most common form of abuse, a lot of neglect is often unintentional. And with education and caregiver support, we can correct and help these patients. Are there any special considerations for our patients who are in institutions? Most people assume that abuse happens in institutions, but institutions are fairly well regulated. And so it is less common for a patient to experience abuse in a nursing facility. Resident to resident abuse is the most important thing to be considerate of. It's approximately 21% of all cases of abuse in nursing facilities. And there's really two forms of abuse there. One, the abuse itself between one resident and the other, but also the lack of supervision by staff that's allowing the abuse to happen, which equates to neglect. So physicians need to pay attention to that possible source of abuse. And then unfortunately, there are some bad apple nursing facilities that do not care for their residents appropriately. But if these are identified, they're easily reportable to the National Ombudsman or Adult Protective Services. And because they are well-regulated by states, they're usually correctable. So we learned a lot about different kinds of abuse and what are the signs of these types of abuse. But I think the big question still remains, which is, do we have to ask all older adults and screen them all for elder abuse? Or are there telltale signs that tell us someone is at higher risk and that those are the ones that need to be screened? So there is no great universal screening protocol, and the U.S. Preventative Task Force does not recommend universal screening because the screening tests do not have high enough sensitivity and specificity. 
in my personal opinion, I think it's important for us to try to screen as many elder patients as we can, because as physicians, we don't do a great job of identifying these cases, and a lot of them go missed. Uh, of all the patients of elder abuse that were reported in the last few years, the fewer than 0.002% of those reports came from physicians. And while the screening tests may not be perfect, they do put the differential diagnosis of elder abuse on your radar, and it can prompt you to further investigate. The screening tools listed in the article do a good job of touching on each form of abuse to try to see if the patient is experiencing any abuse at all or more than one type of abuse. And it gives the patient an opportunity to ask for help uh, when they might not have otherwise. I see. So when we do suspect abuse, whether it's with these screenings or just our general suspicion, I assume we have to report them. It always feels a little uncomfortable, though, to uh, report one of these cases. There are a lot of barriers to reporting elder abuse, and physicians have a lot of their own personal reasons why we don't report. Um, a lot of us feel undertrained in this area, and so we're not good at recognizing the abuse. A lot of us feel like the system doesn't work to protect these patients, so what's the point in reporting? We're all under time constraints between you know, donning and doffing of all of our equipment and trying to keep up our patient loads very busy on a shift. So to sit down and call adult protective services can feel pretty tedious and tiring. But we are expected to report when we suspect these cases. And yes, the system is overburdened and not well-funded, but there are other ways that we can help by reporting. We can help to get the patient plugged into more resources. We can help the patient understand that there is help available, which many patients don't know. And Ultimately, we can document this in our chart and let future providers know if the patient comes in again for something else that this was a suspicion and look further into it on this repeat visit. So let's say you suspect elder abuse. What do you do? Do you just send them back home? So this is definitely a challenge for physicians because we hate to send someone home to an unsafe environment. If the patient wants to be admitted in the hospital or placed in a skilled nursing facility, uh, case management may be able to facilitate something like that. But if that's not the case and the patient does want to go home, um, if they have capacity, then we cannot hold them against their will in the emergency department or in the hospital. So that doesn't mean that we just cast them to the wind. We can make a safer discharge plan. We can contact their primary doctor to let them know what's going on. We can schedule follow-up to make sure the patient doesn't get uh, lost in the cracks. We can contact a safety person with the patient's permission, of course, maybe a friend or a neighbor who's willing to check on the patient and make sure they're safe. So there are options for us to make their discharge safer if we cannot place them in another facility in the short term. Wow. I learned a lot, Nicole, from this article and from you going through this with us. What's your biggest take-home point advice for our listeners? I would say that this topic is probably more important than ever now because while much of our country is under quarantine, a lot of these people are stuck in their homes with their abusers and the rate of abuse is likely to increase as caregiver burdens increase, financial stress increases, uh, patients have difficulty accessing their primary doctors, their medications. So I think 
physicians need to be even more vigilant and looking for signs of abuse and trying to get patients help uh, during this scary time. As Wendy said, Nicole, thank you so, so much for taking the time to write this article and go through it with us. It has been incredibly eye-opening, and as you pointed out explicitly in the beginning of the article, if we don't think about this, it will not be on our radar. We will not pick up on it. So thank you again for bringing this to our attention, for sharing all this information with us, and hopefully we'll all be better able to pick up on elder abuse and screen for it moving forward. So moving on to something that is really similar to this lesson, but at the opposite end of the age spectrum, we're going to be talking about the LSA review about child abuse. Absolutely. So at least when you're thinking about child abuse, oftentimes we think about abusive head trauma, which I learned it's actually the new term or maybe not so new, but new to me, uh, a replacement of the term of shaken baby syndrome. Uh, these are usually in infants and young children, and they can present with very nonspecific symptoms such as apnea, change in mental status, vomiting, or poor feeding. We also have to worry about abdominal trauma, which is less common, but in older toddlers. So if they're presenting with ab- abdominal pain, etc., you can screen using hepatic and pancreatic enzymes. Fractures, especially in non-ambulatory children, Oftentimes we talk about those who don't cruise, rarely bruise. So they also shouldn't get fractures if they're not ambulatory. Uh, And uh, if they're really young, such as if they're less than two years old, then you might have to do a skeletal survey. Don't forget that there are, of course, medical diagnoses and conditions that can predispose these children to bruising and fractures. But similar to the lesson that we just talked about, we as physicians and healthcare providers are legally mandated to report any of these cases if we have a reasonable suspicion of abuse. So for our drug box this month, it's actually on hydroxychloroquine again. Yes, so you are back to COVID and back to hydroxychloroquine because last month we talked about toxicity, but not actually its use. Yeah, so uh, certainly the reason... We were worried about toxicity with hydroxychloroquine is because... I'm still worried. I'm still worried about toxicity, Wendy. That's right, we are. Um, but the thought about this use in COVID is that it can inhibit these viruses in vitro, but certainly we don't have enough data on human subjects yet. The dosing is also uncertain. Usually you're talking about people getting it for four to seven days, depending on their clinical response. But right now, because we don't have enough data, it's not meant for routine care. And the risks that we mentioned last month are prolonged QT, cardiac toxicity. And moving on for the tox box, last but not least, it is sodium hypochlorite poisoning. So technically, it is still COVID because apparently people discovered the concept of cleaning when COVID showed up because now you can't buy bleach or any cleaning products in the, in the stores anymore. So the problem with sodium hypochlorite poisoning or, you know, home bleach is that it's alkaline. So the pH is like 12.6 and that can cause a lot of corrosion. Now, most household bleach ingestions can be managed at home and they're not a big deal. That is not an invitation to drink bleach or rub it all over your body. Please don't. Um, But the poor outcomes usually result from the large deliberate ingestions because those can cause electrolyte imbalance or if you're using an industrial strength with the corrosion that it causes, if it causes it to the skin. So if a person gets that on their skin, their eyes, their mouth, whatever it is, irrigate it liberally. And then if a person is asymptomatic in four hours, they can definitely leave. 
it is rare that they would need any um, endoscopy or anything like that to take a look at their um, esophagus if they had ingested large amounts. And of course, if they have any airway compromise, then that's a whole other different story. Something to keep in mind as well with people getting super excited about super cleaning is that if um, a bleach is mixed with acid or ammonia, it can liberate toxic gases and they can come in with pneumonitis-like picture. Don't do that. Thank you, Andy. Don't do that. Ta ta ta. Well, thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to us this month. We hope that you enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this. We also hope that you find the Critical Decisions and Emergency Medicine publication, as well as our podcast, always informative, sometimes enlightening, and never boring. And we would love to hear your thoughts. Please connect with us on Twitter. My handle is at Dania Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month. Bye-bye.